welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. I'm going to be trying something a little bit different this week, and we will see how it goes. There have already been a few cases decided by the Supreme Court in 2021, and so in a bid to catch up, I'm going to cover the final three cases of 2020 in this one single episode. It will either go really well and will fly through several cases, or it will be a confusing mess that should never have been broadcast there. Let's find out what it'll be. The first case is Mastercard and Walter Hugh Merrick CBE. And the citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 51. In these proceedings, the overarching claim is that Mastercard breached competition law over a period of 15 years, and therefore owes a total of £14 billion to thousands of consumers across the UK. The exact details of that claim are not supremely important here because this appeal to the Supreme Court was about whether these collective proceedings could even go ahead. After all, this claim is not just about Merricks, but also that wide range of people who used a MasterCard between 1992 and 2007. As such, the Competition Appeal Tribunal would need to make a collective proceedings order, and that requires two criteria to be satisfied under Section 47B of the Competition Act 1998. First, that it is just and reasonable for Merricks to be the representative of the class. And secondly, that all of the claims raise common issues of law and fact, so that collective proceedings are suitable. It was on that second point that the tribunal rejected the application, because an aggregate award of damages would not be suitable, and the proposed way of distributing damages did not satisfy the requirements of common law. That rejection was overturned by the Court of Appeal, and so Mastercard appealed to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick things up. The lead judgment begins by noting that when it comes to collective proceedings, damages are one of the hardest things to work out. You may end up with a large sum of money that needs to be allotted amongst a vast swathe of claimants. However, the fact that it is difficult should not be enough to deprive a claimant of a trial in the first place. If a single claimant could bring forward a case without any problems, then there is not a good reason why a collection of claimants should not also be able to do the same. That is what is meant by suitability. When it comes to damages, yes, it is hard to work out, and it might even end up being slightly unfair, but the courts will do the best they can to try and meet the needs of justice. It is better that someone gets slightly more compensation than they deserve, compared to nobody getting any compensation at all. Finally, the justices also took time to point out five errors of law that were made by the Competition Appeals Tribunal, which we won't go into here because they mostly just reiterate the principles that I have just stated, but if you are interested then be sure to check out the full judgement. Anyway, from my point of view, the overarching proceedings are really interesting here. This is a massive claim that could eventually benefit a large number of people. It is quite unusual because while these types of class actions are not uncommon in America, they are certainly more unusual in the UK. The overall likelihood of success is hard to determine because the question is so complex and requires an in-depth interpretation of competition law. At this stage, I think the most we can say is that it is a good thing that the Supreme Court has allowed the case to proceed. Of course, there will be complexities in a difficult case like this, but that should not itself act as a roadblock. 
there will be circumstances where claims should not proceed because it would not be appropriate, but this should be a relatively low hurdle, as justice requires that these types of disputes are able to be resolved before the courts. Just before we move on to our next case, there was some interesting administration that went on with this appeal. Lord Kerr was a part of the panel of justices who heard the case, and prior to his retirement, also agreed that the appeal should be dismissed. Sadly, only a few days before the judgment was handed down, Lord Kerr passed away. This left four judges, and could have been very awkward because two of those four disagreed with the lead judgment of Lord Briggs. In the end, they decided not to dissent because they knew they were in the minority in this case, and so there would be no value in the case having to be reheard in front of a new panel. Okay, let's move on to the Crown on the application of Friends of the Earth Limited and Heathrow Airport Limited, where the citation is 2020 UKSC 52. This case was all about the proposed third runway at Heathrow Airport. Previously, the Court of Appeal had said that this would be illegal because the plans failed to take into account the commitments made by the UK under the Paris Climate Accords, but that has now been overturned by the Supreme Court. One of the main reasons that the justices gave was that the airport's national policy statement has to take into account existing government policy when it does something like recommending the construction of a new runway. The argument that this was not taken into account here because of the Paris commitments fails because of the interpretation of what is meant by government policy. Essentially, this has to be given a narrow interpretation else it could create a trap for anyone writing any sort of national policy framework. It would be impossible to take into account every single ministerial statement or policy document of any relevance when coming to a decision for fear that failure to do so would make the entire framework invalid. Instead, government policy should be interpreted as unambiguous policy statements that are published by the government. Friends of the Earth had relied on statements by two Conservative ministers, and so this did not fall within that definition. Other similar requirements also have to give the government sufficient breathing room. For example, it is necessary to consider sustainable development as part of the decision, and so although the Secretary of State for Transport did not get into details, there was sufficient evidence that he did at least contemplate the Paris Agreement under this heading. At this stage, it is important to note that all is not lost for those campaigning against the third runway. While the requirements at this stage are relatively easy to satisfy, the next step for Heathrow Airport Limited is to seek a development consent order where the environmental impact has to be assessed in much greater detail. Furthermore, the idea of a third runway is opposed by Boris Johnson himself, so it is very difficult to see the plans going ahead anytime soon. This actually brings me on to the final comment I have to make in relation to this judgement. When the courts end up discussing something that is related to policy in one form or another, it's always important to remember that this derives from the same root word as politics. At this point you can see why the courts are loath to impose their own interpretation on these issues because politics is for the politicians, and ideally judges should remain above this fray and simply try to interpret the law. Of course that line does get blurred at times, but here it is pretty clear that a government minister 
should be allowed to set the agenda when it comes to large infrastructure projects without undue interference from the judiciary. Our final case for today is Robinson and Secretary of State for the Home Department, where the citation is 2020 UKSC 53. In order to understand this case, we need to get our heads around the so-called Zambrano principle that derives from the Court of Justice of the European Union case of Ruiz Zambrano and Office Nationale de l'Emploi that was decided in 2011. Basically, it states that if a third country national was not given the right to reside in the EU, then a dependent EU citizen would also be forced to leave the EU as well. Perhaps if I put this into context via the facts of this case, then it will make a little bit more sense. Robinson is a Jamaican national, but was convicted of dealing cocaine in the UK, so she was made the subject of a deportation order. However, before her removal, she gave birth to a baby boy who was a British national and also an EU citizen. Thus, removing Robinson would also entail removing her baby, and depriving that child of its enjoyment of the rights associated with EU citizenship. That is the essence of the Zambrano principle. As such, the upper tribunal held that Robinson was protected from deportation. The Home Secretary launched an appeal, but before that got to the Court of Appeal, the Court of Justice handed down a subsequent judgment in S and Secretary of State for the Home Department from 2017. In that case, it was held that, quote, in exceptional circumstances, a member state may adopt an expulsion measure provided that it is founded on the personal conduct of that third country national, which must constitute a genuine, present and sufficiently serious threat adversely affecting one of the fundamental interests of the society of that member state, and that it is based on consideration of the various interests involved matters which are for the national court to determine." End quote. The question in this case turned on that phrase exceptional circumstances. Robinson argued that this created an extra requirement that the Secretary of State had to satisfy, while the government submitted that this was really just an exception to the general rule. In the end, the justices referred to subsequent EU case law such as Rendon Marine and Administración del Estado from 2017, and K.A. and Belgische Stadt from 2018 to conclude that the exceptional circumstances were not meant as their own unique test, but instead as an exception from the general rule. As a result, Robinson lost her appeal and the case will be remitted back to the upper tribunal, but the Supreme Court also took the time to spell out the three questions that should be asked before a third country national is deported in these circumstances. Firstly, we need to know if there is a relationship of dependency between the third country national and the EU citizen. Secondly, the tribunal should ask if the actions of the third country national represent a genuine, present and serious threat to society that justify deportation on grounds of public security. Finally, there is a balancing act for the tribunal to carry out between the level of threat posed and the rights of the individual threatened with deportation with most attention to be paid to the right to private and family life under Article 7 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. To make a brief comment on this case, the obvious thing to say is that these types of cases are likely to be decided a lot differently now that the UK is not a part of the European Union. 
It is true that a great deal of EU law has been integrated into the UK legal system, but none of us are still citizens of the EU, and it is still not really clear what reliance can be placed by the British courts on case law from the Court of Justice. Brexit suggests that the Home Office will now have a great deal more freedom to deport people without running afoul of European regulations. But then again, it is not impossible to see these types of cases instead transforming themselves into human rights cases where an appellant would instead rely on their Article 8 right to a private and family life under the European Convention on Human Rights. That is a less secure legal right for the individual, but could add a layer of complexity to immigration cases, which is far from what Pretty Patel would like. Well, thank you for staying with me on this whirlwind tour of the end of 2020 in the Supreme Court, and thanks to bensound.com for the theme music. Special thanks this week go to Steve Carmichael, who left a very kind five-star review of the podcast on iTunes and said listening is perfect with a coffee. I couldn't agree more. If you would like to help out the podcast, then do also feel free to leave a review yourself and have your name read out at the end of each episode. We are currently 164th in the news charts on iTunes, beating the BBC's legal podcast, Ian Dale's LBC show, and whatever nonsense Toby Young is putting out there, so thanks very much for that. If you would like to go a step further and help keep the podcast ad-free, then consider subscribing to my newsletter. There is a link in the description to this episode. This week, subscribers got an insight into Boris Johnson's foreign policy in a post-Trump world, as well as my thoughts on the recent legal win for Meghan Markle over the mail on Sunday. If you are a student, then it may interest you to know that you can also get a copy of my short ebook on how to answer essay questions. Anyway, I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!